Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisee had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pintful of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. We all seek life. We love life. But what kind of life do we want? A good friend of mine is a devout Muslim. He runs a newsagent shop in the community. He's popular and very well loved. Some time ago I asked him, are you looking forward to heaven? Oh yes, he replied. Well, what are you looking forward to? And the first thing he said was, seeing the Almighty with my own eyes at last, the pleasure of seeing him. And then he said, meeting the prophets, enjoying good company, getting to do the things we can't do here like wearing gold and silk and enjoying the finer things of life. And he paused and looked around the newsagent's shop and said to me with a twinkle in his eye, it has to be better than this. And you see, his hope is really the hope of life, abundant life. He's not holding out to run a newspaper shop for all of eternity. 
He wants a life that is great, that is fulfilled, that is rich, that is beautiful. We want life. We want abundance, fullness. And we also want the time to enjoy it, not cut short by death. And we know, don't we, that when life is lost or taken away, we feel this terrible, shocking sense of grief and loss and pain. And we've witnessed the value of life. We've, we've perhaps been reminded of the value of life more than ever with, with this pandemic of the last few months. And we've witnessed it afresh in the last couple of weeks with the shocking killing of a man called George Floyd. And the cry has gone up, black lives matter. Yes, they do. We all want life. But how can we get it? Life that is abundant, life that is good, life that never ends. Now the Gospel of John gives us the Bible's answer. The writer of John leaves a key at the back door, as it were. In, at the end of his book, in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he tells us why he wrote the book and he uses these words. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John here is summarising a marvellous and majestic sweep of his entire gospel, this book that has taken us from all eternity past, through the early years and ministry of Jesus, through to his suffering on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his final teachings and his ascension into heaven. And right at the end, John says, here's why I've written it down for you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that's the promised king, the anointed king that God would send. That you would believe he is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now the first half of John's gospel introduces Jesus. It shows us his teaching, his miracles. It reveals his identity. In John, miracles aren't actually called miracles. They're called signs because they're like signposts that point to who he really is. And as we come to terms with what John and the Bible is saying about Jesus Christ, we reach now this transitional point in the story and we find different reactions to Jesus. Now, I'm actually picking up a series that we began in John's Gospel some five years ago at Grace Church. We spent six months on the first half of John and it was very a very rich time. We picked up the story of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus just before Easter. So here we are resuming at chapter 11, verse 45 and taking this passage forward. Uh, here, in this section, we find three reactions to Jesus. And the text is really posing a question for you and me, which is this. Where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? We need to have the courage to ask that and to look in the mirror and see what we find out. There are three responses to Jesus in this passage. And the first two of them are very sobering indeed. There is cynics calculation and a traitor's valuation. And then the third response, which is quite beautiful, is a disciple's adoration. Let's turn back to our Bibles. John 11 verse 45, a cynic's calculation. Now straight after the astonishing account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, ripples begin. Verse 45 says, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. So the effect of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is to increase belief in him. People turn to him in trust and faith. But verse 46, there's a shadow side to this, and it's that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what had happened. Now this group who were known as the Pharisees were a kind of uh, protest group. 
in Jewish society at the time, they were often influential people. They weren't priests or part of the religious um, hierarchy, but they were earnest, committed to the Bible, wanted to go back to basics. They were moral people. They wanted to see the Old Testament standards enforced in the national life of the people in order that they could hope to, to be established again as their own nation. And these Pharisees are dead against Jesus. And all the way through the book, they've been dogging his steps and challenging him. And actually, they've been plotting to kill him for some time. But here it goes to another level. Verse 47 takes us into a secret meeting. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is an informal gathering of the most powerful men in the nation, a council, a group called the Sanhedrin. And verses 47 to 48 reveal what it is that these leaders are actually anxious about. Underneath everything else is a fear of Rome. This is what it says. Uh, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then listen, then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Underlying everything is a fear of Rome. And they're making this calculation that's been going on ever since Jesus came to public attention. What are the risks to us? Now, Rome, about 100 years ago, before this happened, uh, the, the Roman Empire had basically taken over pretty much all of the Middle East. They were a formidable fighting force. The Roman army was the most, the best organized and most terrifying military force that the world had ever seen. Uh, those of you who remember the, the Russell Crowe film Gladiator of a few years ago will remember that powerful depiction of, of the, the might of Rome sweeping through countries and even continents and taking all before them. And in fact, no one could stand before the Romans except the Scottish, because ultimately when they got as far north as just a bit north of Newcastle, they gave up, built a wall and went back down south. But no one else apart from the Scots could stand before them. And uh, some years before the time of Jesus, there had been a, an uprising of Jews who were sick of Roman rule. And they tried to, revolutionaries tried to, to take back the land. And there had been terrifying consequences. The Roman armies who were stationed up in Syria to the north had come through like a, like a steamroller and uh, put down all opposition and actually crucified hundreds of Jews along two sides of a road. So within living memory, these guys know what Rome is capable of, and they are terrified of what might happen if word gets out of what this unruly northerner, Jesus of Nazareth, is doing. Now, the leader of this group is a man called Caiaphas. He comes out to the front in verse 49. He's a chief priest like the others, but as the high priest, he has this role of a kind of first among equals. So he speaks up and he summarizes what many of them are feeling. And verse 50 is actually a very cynical statement. Uh, the a professor of New Testament at uh, St. Andrews University, Tom Wright, brings out the sense of this with a kind of um, a more flowing translation. He says this, Caiaphas says, you haven't worked it out. This is what's best for you. Let one man die for the people rather than the whole nation be wiped out. Now, what is he saying? You might remember when you were at school, high school, there would often be something that was a kind of debate 
over the ethics of a situation. Sometimes it was, there are three people in a hot air balloon, but it can only carry two of them. So one of them's got to be thrown out of the hot air balloon. And one of them's Adolf Hitler, one of them's Mother Teresa, and the other one is Jeremy Corbyn or something. Or they would have an example like a limited number of people on a boat, lost at sea with a limited amount of food. And who are you going to give the food to? And it's basically an exercise in utilitarian ethics. What's the right thing to do in a tricky situation? And what Caiaphas is basically saying is Jesus must die. It's for the greater good. And what he's saying underneath that is, we've got to make sure it happens. Either we kill him ourselves, or we make sure that the Romans do it for us. Now just let this sink in for a moment. The most senior spiritual leader in the country has just announced that they must arrange to have an innocent man killed. It's like overhearing a secret recording of the Archbishop of Canterbury and Boris Johnson calmly planning to have someone strangled to death. What is going on? Now the answer is, this is a cynical calculation, a cynic's calculation. Caiaphas's reading of the situation is cynical politics from top to bottom. Why do I say cynic? Dick Kyes is a Christian writer and a thinker. He works at a centre called Labrie in Massachusetts in the United States. Kyes writes that a cynic is a person who thinks they can see through everything. Nothing is sacred. Everything is fake. There is a reason to be sceptical about everything. And Kai's points out that the one thing that cynics can't see through, or the one thing they're not sceptical about, is their own motivation and their own ability to see through things. A cynic believes that he or she can see through to the motivation of other people. They assume the worst of other people's motives. And in this case, Caiaphas assumes that Jesus is just another revolutionary like all the others. He assumes that Jesus is out to seize power for himself. He assumes that Jesus' motives and methods are just like everyone else, and so he rejects Jesus violently. But Caiaphas has actually completely misread the situation. He's got Jesus completely the wrong way round. He's totally misunderstood him. And there is an extraordinary irony in this text. If you look at verse 51, Caiaphas, it says, did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. How ironic. Caiaphas ends up saying that Jesus will die for the sake of the nation and for the global scattered people of God, the children of God all around the world. He didn't know what he was saying. But in the hands of God, this became a profound prophecy. It is 100% true. That's what Jesus did achieve by his death on the cross. And he's still achieving it today as the scattered children of God are being gathered from all around the world. But the leaders here see it as their mandate now to plot for the assassination of Jesus in verse 53. Now, what do we learn from this first response to Jesus? I think it's this. It's a warning to us not to think that we can see through Jesus Christ. If we assess him by the wrong standards, by the standards of this world, we will get Jesus badly wrong. But people actually do this all the time. 
They assume that miracles can't possibly take place, therefore Jesus didn't do them. They assume that the dead can't rise, therefore Jesus didn't. They assume that there can't be only one way to God, therefore that Jesus was wrong about being the way, the truth and the life, and he's just a human teacher. But all of these assumptions are made without coming before Jesus and looking seriously at who he is. In fact, Jesus is the one who is assessing us. He has come into our world and done extraordinary things, well-attested things, things that only God could do. He's made extraordinary claims, radical claims, things that only God could claim. And he has made amazing promises, promises that only God could fulfill. So can I ask today, where do you stand in relation to Jesus Christ? Who's on trial? Does Jesus assess you or do you think you're assessing him? Now, if you're exploring the Christian faith, I'm really glad you're with us and that you're listening to this and you're, that you are applying your mental powers to look into the claims of Jesus. But have you come to terms with him yet? Here's C.S. Lewis in a well-known quote from Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Where are you today in your relation to Jesus Christ? Are you in danger of a cynic's calculation? The second response that we find in this passage actually is in some ways worse. It's certainly more chilling because it comes from the inner circle. This is the response of one of Jesus' most trusted followers, Judas Iscariot, and I've called it a traitor's valuation. See, in chapter 12, the scene changes. Once more, Jesus and the disciples are back in Bethany, a place they love to go. They're with his close friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And the text reminds us that this is the same Lazarus who was raised from the dead back in chapter 11. And it seems to be a kind of celebration dinner. Lazarus is there, alive and well, reclining at the table, eating and happily munching away with the others. And Martha, as she usually did, is cooking up a great feast very busy in the kitchen. And then all of a sudden, Mary does something that nobody expects. And it, we might even say it's completely out of character. She takes the most expensive thing that she owns, a big jar of expensive perfume, and she pours it out on Jesus. She pours it, it seems, on his feet and wipes his feet with her long hair. This is crazy behaviour. Now, we'll come back to Mary in a moment. But for now, suffice to say that this is the most generous thing that anybody ever did to Jesus Christ during his life on earth. The most lavish, sacrificial gift is given to him. It is Mary's way of giving him the highest honour. But look at the response of Judas. Chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Fascinating. Now we've all heard of Judas, haven't we? Judas's name is synonymous with betrayal. What a tragic figure he was. He was one of the 12 handpicked for leadership by Jesus himself. He'd been there for the whole journey. Judas was there on the hillside when Jesus sat down and taught his marvellous manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. Judas was there handing out a, a few loaves and fish and seeing Jesus feed 5,000 men plus women and children out in the wilderness. Judas was there in the boat, scared with the others on the Sea of Galilee when a furious storm came up. He saw Jesus stand up and calm the storm with a word. He was there at countless healings, countless exorcisms, countless teachings. Judas was part of the inner circle. He was an intimate. He lived with Jesus for three years on the road. That gives a friendship and an intimacy that nothing else can. He'd seen Jesus exhausted and worn out, but still giving his care and attention to the crowds. He'd heard Jesus teach and preach on numerous occasions. He'd been sent out by Jesus on mission trips. And he'd gone out in the name of Jesus and he'd seen Jesus' power at work. He had looked Jesus into, in the eye and seen eyes of love look back. Jesus had poured his life into this man, Judas Iscariot. And verse six gives us an intriguing detail. Did you know that Judas actually had a special job in the group of disciples? It says he was keeper of the money bag. Of all the 12, Judas was the one who looked after the shared purse. He was trusted with the money. Now that must mean that he appeared to be a highly responsible and trustworthy and reliable member of the group. You can imagine a discussion, can't you? They're all looking around and thinking, well, who are we going to trust to, to, to keep, keep the money and make sure that we're, you know, we've got enough resources and that we're giving to the poor? And then they look at Peter. He's the natural leader. He's kind of the alpha male. But they think, ah, you know what? He's very impulsive. I'm not sure we can give him the money back. What about James and John? You know, brothers, they're close to Jesus? No, they can be a little bit grasping and ambitious. Well, what about Thomas? I'm not sure about Thomas. He seems a tiny bit unreliable. Remember, he missed a key meeting later on when Jesus had risen from the dead. Okay, what about Judas? Of course, they said. Everybody agreed Judas is solid. But it turns out he wasn't. This is what verse 6 says. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas, we would say, had his fingers in the till. He used to skim money off the top for himself. And of course, no one knew because he was so good at it, at least not for a very long time. And this is the guy who betrayed Jesus to death. We learn elsewhere that Judas went out into the night soon after this and he struck a deal with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, remember what I said at the start, that we're looking for ourselves in this passage. The question we need to ask now is, what do we learn about ourselves from Judas? And you might think, what an offensive question. I'm nothing like Judas. Hang on a minute. Don't forget that Judas was a prudent, reliable, religious man. He appeared to be serving Jesus very faithfully, 
wholeheartedly along with the other disciples. He looked great on the outside, but his heart motives were completely wrong. He was driven by personal ambition for his own glory, not for the glory of Jesus. He was out for what he could get from Jesus, not what he could give to serve his Lord. He used his position in the group for personal gain, for personal enrichment at the expense of others. And when he saw passionate devotion like that of Mary, who really is going way beyond anyone else in terms of her demonstration of love, Judas's instinctive reaction was to recoil and think, oh, that's a bit over the top. Because ultimately, you know, Judas actually had a low view of Jesus Christ. He sold Jesus out. And do you know how much he sold him for? 30 pieces of silver. That was the valuation that this so-called disciple put on Jesus. It was, we learn in the book of Exodus, the basic price of a human life, the basic price of a slave. That's what Jesus was worth to him when it came down to it. A traitor's valuation. Very, very subtle, very chilling, looking very good on the outside, but underneath his heart was rotten. Now look at the contrast with Mary. And we finish with this third point, a disciple's adoration. We find Jesus reclining at the table. It's dinner time and there are the men lounging around and the air is filled with conversation and voices. And then this extraordinary thing happens. Mary comes in with half a litre of pure nard, which is a very expensive perfume. And we know from the other Gospels that it's in an alabaster jar and that she breaks the jar and she pours out the perfume on Jesus and that she lets down her hair and wipes his feet with it. The fragrance of the perfume filled the whole place. There is Jesus in the middle of the room being treated like royalty. This is kingly. She is treating Jesus like a very important person who deserves all honour. And Mary is also breaking all the rules. Firstly, in polite Jewish society, a woman would not come into the fellowship of a group of men unless she was serving food. Secondly, she would not let her hair down. One scholar says this is the equivalent of a woman at a dinner party rolling up a long skirt and revealing the top of her thighs. This is not something that women usually did. And thirdly, she has done something that most of the people in the room think is a scandal. She has just blown £30,000 on anointing Jesus. 30 grand. Now Oscar Wilde famously wrote that a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And other people in the room are looking on and figuring out mentally how much that perfume is worth. Mark chapter 14 notes that some of them were actually sort of whispering to each other indignantly, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. The original language says 300, more than 300 denarii. That's probably in the footnote of your Bible. And a denarius was a coin that was a day's wage for the average labourer. So it would take more than a year for the average worker to earn the money to buy a single jar of perfume like this. About £30,000. What do you think about that? Do you think it was extravagant? Do you think it was really a waste? 
Think of what you could use £30,000 for. Just think about the poor, how much money, good that money could do for charity. Think about refugees, asylum seekers, people who've got nothing, living on £38 a week. Think what this amount of money could do. To just break it and pour it on Jesus, was it a waste? Well, not according to Jesus. He says, leave her alone. Why? Here's his answer. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See, in Jesus' mind, this is an exceptional gesture, but the circumstances call for it. He knows he's on his way to death very soon. He knows he's going to be betrayed and killed. He will be executed in the most violent way. He will be spat upon, beaten up. His beard will be torn out of his face. He will be flogged, dragged through the streets and be so weakened by the ordeal that he actually won't be able to carry the crossbeam of his own cross. Someone else will be forced to take it for him. He will be stripped naked, nailed to a wooden cross, and that will be dropped into a hole in the ground. And the shock of that alone could dislocate someone's bones. And there he will hang until dead. The most excruciating, the most painful, the most shameful way to die that the Romans could come up with. But there is more than that. Jesus will have the emotional experience of being abandoned by his closest friends. Judas is just the start. There will be a total defection. Peter, one of his closest, will swear blind that he never knew Jesus. In the hour of his need, they all deserted him. And there's more. At a level that we can barely comprehend, our God is a trinity of three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, a triunity. And through all eternity, they've been united in a communion of love, supremely happy. And at the cross, the Bible says, it was the will of the Father to crush him. And it is the will of the Son to be crushed. At his darkest hour, when all the lights went out and even creation went dark, Jesus will cry out in dereliction. And he didn't cry out, why have all my friends betrayed me? He didn't cry out, I'm in absolute agony. There was something that was worse than any of that, which was that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Till that moment, Jesus has always addressed God as Father, taught his followers to do the same, an intimate address. But here on the cross, he has lost his Father. And so he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, Jesus knows the answer to that question. It was no mystery to him why the Father had forsaken him, because it was the will of the Father to crush him so that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory by bearing their sin and the just penalty for all that they'd done on the cross. The spotless Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on the cross so that we might become righteous before God. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He took our sin and shame away, never to be seen again. Do you still think that it was a waste of perfume? Scholars tell us that in Jesus' time, women were largely excluded from careers that earn money and they therefore didn't have the possibility of earning such wages to buy something like this. That jar of perfume was most likely a family heirloom. 
it would be kept safe and passed down. And if ever the family was in dire need, then and only then would it be sold and the money used. You wouldn't actually use perfume like this. This isn't like your bottle of Chanel number no. five in the cupboard. It was an investment. It was Mary's life savings. There is a totality about this gift. There is a reckless extravagance about what she does. She has just poured out her net worth onto Jesus. She has poured out her security, her savings, in a single loving gesture. Why did she do this? The answer has to be that at some level, Mary has made a connection between the gospel, the good news, and the suffering of Jesus. And no one else has realised it. She has made the connection that the gospel, the great glad tidings that Jesus has been announcing, is bound up with his suffering and his death. And so she anoints his body ahead of time. And that understanding that Mary has has drawn from her heart love. And of course, she's seen her brother raised from the dead by this same Jesus. And she knows that Jesus risked his life by coming to rescue Lazarus. And in a way, Lazarus only came out of the tomb because Jesus was prepared to put himself into it. As a result of that, the knives are out for Jesus and the Sanhedrin have decided to kill him. There is no way back. She loves Jesus for what he means to her, for what he's done for her and for what he will do in the future. Because remember, she's also heard Jesus promising that he is the resurrection and the life. Life without end. So when she heard that Jesus was coming to the house to visit, she started thinking, how can I honour him? What can I do? What would be appropriate and fitting for, for Jesus? And then she thought of the perfume. It was the best thing that she had. And she poured it out on him. We're looking for ourselves in this story, remember, as we look at Jesus. And we're wondering where we fit with the cynic's calculation and the traitor's valuation and now the disciples' adoration because that's what Mary's gesture was, a gesture of reckless, extravagant love. She adored him. Let me ask, are you ready to give everything you have to honour Jesus, this paradoxical king? True devotion knows no limits. I've told a story before in our church, it's a great story, it bears repeating, about the Wall Street executive who started attending a church in Manhattan led by Pastor Tim Keller. And Tim Keller reports the story that this woman who was engaging with the Christian teaching and listening, she wasn't a Christian, but she began to understand the gospel and she had a salary like a telephone number. And she met Pastor Keller and said to him, if what you are saying is true, then there is nothing that Jesus could not ask of me. If what you were saying is true, then there is nothing that Jesus could not ask of me. What about you today? What is Jesus Christ asking of you? What about the level of relationships? Are you pursuing a relationship with someone or perhaps dating them that you know you, you shouldn't if Jesus is supremely worthy and beautiful to you? Are you being asked to serve Jesus in a stretching way, to perhaps to serve his church or another Christian ministry? 
and it's a stretching way and it's painful and you don't really get much back from it. In fact, you're being asked to give yourself and you're not going to get anything in return. You fear the loss of your own comfort and safety and security. You fear the drain on you. It's Jesus asking you to, to tell someone about him, to share the good news, but you're actually afraid of what that might mean. You're afraid of the expectations, uh, whether it will result in the loss of a friendship or loss of approval or, or, or you, your status will be reduced. And what about your money? If Jesus Christ is the Lord of you, then surely he's the Lord of your wallet and your bank balance. Have you reviewed your giving to gospel work recently? Does it kind of keep line in line with what Jesus Christ has given for you? Or really is the money that he's entrusted to you being spent largely on yourself rather than on his kingdom? It's not really your money, you know. It's just money that it's his that he's entrusted to you for a while. How are you using your resources? And for some, it might not be a question of money. It might be a question of time and talents and our emotional availability to other people. You see, a disciple, Mary shows us the essence of what it means to be a disciple, which is someone who actually sees what Jesus has done and adores him and loves him and says, this is true. And nothing he could ask of me would be too much. Where are you in this story, in this set of valuations? The cynical calculation that thinks it's seen through Jesus, but actually gets him totally wrong. The treacherous valuation of someone who appears to be following Jesus, but really is doing it only for their own gain. Or the heart response of a disciple who remembers what Jesus has done and pours out everything on his feet. Let's pray. Loving Lord, we are challenged by Mary. We thank you that this story was written down for our benefit. We know that it's being told all over the world and always will be till the end of time because it is this most wonderful gesture of love and adoration for you. Even right at this moment, Lord, we ask that you'd show us, reveal to us, what it is that you want us to pour out and where it is in our lives that we may be acting cynically or treacherously towards you. Help us to renounce that, Lord, and to live wholeheartedly for you. Amen.